1 through 35. One Sabbath, when he, would, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into, well, into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with, this, with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the man who invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to this servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to rebuild a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate what he is able with 10,000 to meet him, who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you so much for, for even this hot weather. We thank you for the rain last night. We pray, Lord, that we would see your glory in, in all days and all situations, Father. That we would have a, an attitude of gratitude, Lord. That we would read your word every single day. That we would, we would long to spend time with you, Father. Even when we don't, that we would be disciplined to read your word. And that you would open our eyes and our hearts. And that we would, that we would hear you. Help us to take, uh, take heart and, and be inspired by Charlotte and the works that she's done that I'm Paraguay, Father. Help us to have hearts for others, others we don't know that aren't going to be, aren't going to repay us, Father, for what we do for them. We love you, Lord. Please be with Jonathan as, as he speaks the word today. Speak the words through him, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Yes, sir. You live in one of those nice neighborhoods that got rain last night. So you're pre- I'm like, are you being prophetic? Are we going to get some? Maybe. Not in my hood, but that's okay. So the kingdom is for those that can't afford it. That's the big idea here from Luke 14 and what we want to look into today as we open the text. And it's that idea of like being where you don't belong. It's not a foreign concept to us, right? As kids, it can actually be quite an adventure. And I was fairly nostalgic for high school this week. Um, and was actually sad. So I ended up Googling some of my high school friends to see where they had done. And one had recently passed away and was a little shaken by that. Somebody my same age is already gone. Uh, but I was reflecting on some of our times as youth. And in Omaha, there was Hitchcock Pool. And of all the public pools in Omaha, this was the only one that had diving platforms. And we used to break into Hitchcock Pool in the middle of the night. Terrible example. Children don't do this anymore, right? But the swimming was fun. The diving off the platform was fun. I, would, I never did that because I don't like heights, right? But there was something about being on the verge of being caught that actually made it so exciting to be in that space, that place where we did not belong. So it's fun for kids, but as adults, when we grow up a little bit, it becomes embarrassing, right? That we realize we're, we don't belong in this space. How did I get into this environment? And it can be embarrassing for us, at least before the advent of caring culture, and you get to be anywhere you darn well please, right? Um, but Jesus here is smack in the middle of an event that turns out to be all about belonging. Who's supposed to be there? Who's to be invited to a banquet that is to come? And it's about position. It's about entry. It's about privilege. All happening here in Luke 14. And it's not what those invited to a meal expect. And it might not be what we expect as refined readers in 2022. The truth is the kingdom is for those that can't afford it. Where does Luke 14 get us? It's nice to be back in the Gospel of Luke. I think we had a fruitful summer in the Psalms. And uh, we can reflect on what we've seen already in this Gospel as we studied it this year. Jesus comes onto the scene, his arrival, his ministry. And he kicks off his ministry in his hometown by reading Scripture and proclaiming the, the year of Jubilee has actually come upon God's people. 
And then since that moment, he backs up those claims with healings, with miracles of feeding, with calling disciples unto himself. Uh, There's calls to repentance that he brings before the people. And there is fruit bearing in ministry. There are people that are coming and following after him. And all along, there's been this tension of confrontation with religious elites about what really matters, that they've missed the point of it all. And through all of his teaching, all of his ministry, for those that are witnessing it and for us as we evaluate it reading scripture, it's all upside down. It's happening not in the way that we would expect it to happen. It's opposite of what the culture at the time, even for God's people, expect things to happen. This heralded kingdom is, as he proclaims it, for the least. It's for the dirty, it's for the poor, the brokenhearted are who receive this kingdom. And that's exactly then who his ministry reaches. And that's what we've seen up to this point. Now he's on his journey to Jerusalem. Things are wrapping up and there's going to be a cross there waiting for him. As the story progresses, the rulers are increasingly trying to catch Jesus in blasphemy. He would be saying something against God. And that's the vibe of this meal that is happening in Luke 14 at the house of the lead Pharisee as they were watching him carefully, Luke tells us. We have to understand when we look at this meal, it is all a setup, right? It is on the Sabbath, and they've invited a sick man essentially as bait for Jesus. And they still haven't learned their lessons from all the interactions they've had up to this point. Luke says, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And that's like edema. Essentially, it's a fluid filling cavities of your body. It's a swelling that is often a sign of organ failure or system failure. So this guy is likely close to death. There's not much that can be done for him, this retention of water is noticeable. He says, is it lawful or not to heal this person? And the audience then, notice, stays silent. They don't answer Jesus's question. This is the fourth time then in Luke's gospel already that he's healed on the Sabbath. And they know better than to argue with him because they know what is about to happen. And Jesus took him and healed him. It's fascinating the word used to describe the healing here in the original language. It's not just like a symptomatic healing. It's not like the swelling stopped, but it's the idea of complete healing, that his life is restored. And then Jesus says that all they care for is themselves. Even does the comparison, and like the ESV says that you would, what does he say? You having a son or an ox that has fallen on the Sabbath day. Some manuscripts actually, where we've translated it, son actually said donkey. And so he's essentially saying in this setting, you care more about cattle than you care for your neighbor. That's no bueno. That's not the way of the kingdom. That is not what God's people are supposed to be about. And from there, Jesus launches into this set of instruction for his people and then storytelling that sets the tone for the kingdom. From this meal that is supposed to be a setup, he's going to talk about a greater meal that is the revelation of the kingdom and who it's for. And for this crowd, it's important because there's a danger that those originally invited to the meal won't taste the feast. We start with the, just this first idea from Luke 14, that you are invited into the kingdom 
but not because you can repay. The invitation is out there, and it's not, in fact, because you're going to bring anything to this banquet. It's not anything that you bring to the kingdom as if you would be able to repay the cost of this feast. And Jesus calls out the host right away and the guests for lacking humility. Because he starts to paint this picture of this kingdom and the banquet, and it's for those that we don't expect it to be for. And he teaches here proverbial wisdom. He's just quoting from Proverbs 25, essentially, and he's saying, don't sit in the place of honor. In fact, take the lowest place and you might be moved up higher. You might be honored in that scenario. And naturally, when I read this, I want to hate on the guests of this meal for acting like this, right? Because they're bumping elbows with each other. They're trying to get the best seat. They're trying to be as close as they possibly can be to the action. And it seems more like they want to be presented as more important than they actually are, all dependent upon where they are near this table. But I can't hate on them too much because I end up seeing myself in this action, in this posture, this attitude that they have. And we all get this because we live like this constantly. We're always jockeying for place. We're looking for honor. And even the mentality of just fake it till you make it like proves that point because we, we want to be somewhere else than we actually belong or deserve. So just fake it until you make it. Like some of you know the story of Frank uh, Abagnale, right? The, the story and movie of Catch Me If You Can. Remember that? Where he commits all this fraud that actually didn't harm anybody. That's the funny part of the story, right? But he does it for fun, seemingly pretending to be who he wasn't. And that's just how he goes about life. And that's essentially what these guests at this meal are doing. They're pretending to be honorable people so that they can sit in places of honor when they should not be choosing those places for themselves. One writer says that their sin was intensely spiritual. Human honor gave them a sense of substance and reality. Human recognition told them they were superior to their fellows. And if that was true, they were also of greater value before God. The same illustration is rampant today. Salvation by recognition. Eternal life through temporal significance. Immortality through notoriety. If we could just be famous for being a Christian, then it will be fine. And Jesus is saying to those that are familiar with Torah, the teaching, Scripture, and the wisdom books, that you've missed the point. You're supposed to take the low place. You're supposed to be humble. He says then, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So he's instructing them that true humility does not seek honor and praise in this world as its goal And by teaching them this, he's establishing that humility is a marker of the kingdom. This is what it is to be around this king, that people would be humble, taking lower places and allowing for him to honor them. And as I was studying, it reminded me of the story of a church conference probably 40 years ago now. And maybe you won't even know who Francis Schaeffer is. Anybody know Francis Schaeffer or read some of his books? But he was set to headline a few sessions of teaching at this conference. And the setting was beautiful, right? It's a retreat center in the mountains. One of the uh, conference staff then tells this story. They had all the rooms were booked out. 
and they had one room left, the suite that was reserved for Schaefer, who was the keynote speaker at this conference. And the staff tells the story of waiting for him to show up. And it was late in the night, and the, the, clearly the honored person had not arrived, and he's waiting in this cold lobby. And the door of this resort opens, and in comes this bedraggled old man with a hiking backpack on. Grubby clothes, clearly out of place. And assuming just that this guy was lost, the worker's like, well, how can I help you, sir? And he responded that he just hoped to take part in the conference if he could, even as it's a late hour. And the worker relayed to him that the registration won't open again until the morning, but all of the rooms were taken. So there's a no room in the inn situation, right? And the old man said to him, that's okay, I don't need much space. If I could just have a little floor to rest my head and sleep and then can participate in the conference. So the worker who is clueless at this point, and this is why you will get a full picture of who, if we ever host a conference of who the speakers are so you can honor them as they come in, right? So, but he just lets him sleep in the lobby. And eventually the worker's sick of waiting up for Francis Schaefer to show up. So he just goes to bed. And then the next morning he meets his boss in the lobby. And he's like, I'm sorry that Francis Schaefer never showed up. And the boss is like, what are you talking about? He's asleep on the couch. But that's that humility of not coming in and saying, I'm the keynote speaker. I'm the one you're waiting for. It's like, I just need a little space. And to take it. Pastor Tony Evans says that followers of Christ are not to exalt themselves by presumptuously seeking positions of greatness. Rather, they are to assume lower positions of service and allow God to exalt them. Humility is the true path to glory. So humility is the way in the kingdom. And God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that the proper proper time he may exalt you. Peter writes to us in his letter. And what's more than just teaching them about humility, which is good, it's vital, it's important. Jesus says, don't waste your invites, right? He goes after the host a bit here and he says, when you give a banquet, don't invite those that can repay you for attendance at that banquet. And I mean, the opposite of it, we just see is good strategy, perpetuate the blessing, right? I invite you, you invite me. You ever gone to lunch with somebody and it's like, oh, okay, you bought last time, I'm going to get this time, right? For Bill, it's like, if I take you to the airport, well then I, you know, he has to take me to the airport and that's how we negotiate, right? That just makes sense to us. But Jesus flips it here though, doesn't he? Because he gives a picture of the kingdom, that the kingdom is different. He says to invite those that are incapable of repayment. He says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. You will be repaid at the resurrection. And so he's orienting us toward the future, towards his ultimate glory. And this, we have to understand, is scandalous in this setting here. And I wonder how many people in the house wondered to themselves or even spoke to each other and saying, like, how dare he speak like this? To the lead Pharisee who has invited us here. He's going to tell, have the nerve to tell him who to invite into his home when he gives a banquet. And here Jesus is commanding that the nobodies be welcomed into the feast. The people we don't want to be around. 
And we don't want to miss that this guy with dropsy was invited, but it's likely only to catch Jesus breaking the law. It's not like he would typically be there. This was a culture that despised the broken and unclean. And he says, yeah, those are the ones that you should celebrate with. Those are my people, is what Jesus is saying. Those are the ones that you should share your good wine with. Love what one discipleship Bible commentary says that Jesus told his Pharisee host he should have a banquet for disabled persons rather than for relatives and rich friends. Then he would receive God's blessings. The disabled should participate fully in our programs and fellowship. God welcomes the disabled with their special gifts into his kingdom. And we can say so much more here. But even when you just think of like, what does it mean to be building a church and the, the labor that we're called to as Reservoir Church? And it's not jockeying for places of honor. Those are all taken, right? So don't even try. But it, it, instead, it is a place for the least, for the unseen around us in our community. And we have honorable people in Reservoir Church. Don't hear me say anything that I'm not saying. And we should have honorable people here. But all of us are to be humbled by the grace of Jesus and never to be too good for the least. This informs our efforts towards inclusion and disability ministry that I'm so thankful that we're moving on, creating a space for everyone to feast on the goodness of the Lord in community with other believers. Because this is who Jesus invites into the kingdom. Those that don't have the credit to pay for it. The Pharisees here have a small view of the law And they just go about life presuming upon their roles or their status as proof that they get to eat in the kingdom of God. And instead, it's those they presume that are too far off. Those that recognize their need and come to Jesus. So whether it's poverty, disability, or sin that mars our lives, these are who are invited into the kingdom. Those that can't pay. When you have eyes to see it, you may realize this is you. But take heart if you can't pay. Because Jesus bears the burden and pays your way. Now, this conversation over dinner is not going in the right direction for those that are at the table in the Pharisee's house, right? And we see in verse 15, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, well, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. We don't quite catch the tone when we just read it in the English translation, but he's essentially just trying to change the subject. Could get Jesus to move on, right? And have you ever been in a conversation where you'll drop a statement with the hopes that, okay, that will be the period on the conversation we can move on, right? I, I do that a fair bit, and people never notice, and they just keep going with the conversation. But that's what this guy's saying. He's like, okay, okay, but blessed is everybody who gets to eat at the kingdom. Right? As if he's raising his glass. Can we have a toast and then move on and talk about other things, but Jesus presses the idea here. He won't change the subject. And he gives us this story of the great banquet. And and why a banquet? Why does he talk about a feast? Well, for one, they're having one at this very moment, so it's a good illustrative um, situation, but it's not just perfect for the setting. It's also the imagery that those that are at the table were supposed to pick up on. 
It's the picture of the feast in the coming kingdom that they were to see from the prophets. In Isaiah 25, he says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-defined. That's why I can't be a vegan, friends. Because I'm heading toward the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I'm trying to get a little pre-taste, an appetizer of it. But this is the kingdom. And in this story, the great man that Jesus is telling, the great man invites many to the feast. And do you understand who the great man is? Like, it's Jesus. It's God. And he's inviting all these people to this banquet. And in this age, it was customary to receive two invitations to a banquet. It was just a normal situation. There was the first invitation to let you know that you were invited and that this banquet is going to eventually happen. And then you felt honored by that, that you had been extended invitation. And then there is a second invitation when the servants would come around and let you know that the feast was ready. Like the food is on. It's happening now. They have dropped that sick beat. You better come on. Right? Nobody wants to go to that banquet with some boots and cats. Boots and cats. No, sorry. I love you guys for loving me and just staring blankly at me when I try to be funny. But this is what's happening in this story, right? When they've received an invitation the first round, but then when the food is prepared, those invited do what? They start making excuses. One brought a field and had to go check on it. Did you get that? text this week Aaron was telling me I wasn't coming to a small group I'm like would you buy a field and have to go check on it he's like huh like it'll make sense in a few days wait another just bought five yoke of oxen and needed to attend to them like how ridiculous is that you don't know what your field looks like that you just bought you don't know what the five oxen or the five yoke of oxen five pairs of oxen looks like but you've already bought them and you have to go look at them it's still another says that he's just married and he's not going to come. So he's like matching the military requirements. Like if you're married, you got to take a year off. You didn't have to go. You could just go and be with your wife. And so there's an excuse for this banquet. I'm like, if I'm just married and invited to a banquet, hey, free meal, that's date night. But they're making excuses. And some scholars and pastors have delved into the relevance of these excuses. You've, if you've been around the church, you've probably heard people argue about these excuses But I just want to recognize them at the high level for what they are. They're just reasons to reject the invitation. The reasons could be varied, but this is just a sampling of why people would reject the invitation and the the banquet. And the kingdom works this way. There is a double invitation. The teachings and prophets, scripture makes clear that the kingdom is coming, that the banquet would have well-aged wine and rich food, and it outlines life in preparation for God's people, and they were to live with an anticipation for the feast that was coming. But now the food is ready. Messiah has come, and he calls them in. This is the second invitation, yet those invited originally make excuses. They seem to like life as it is. They like their position as religious elites. They like their experience of power as meaningless as it is in the Roman world at this moment. They don't recognize their need for this king. 
And Jesus explains that those who say they have such interest in the kingdom feast do not actually delight in the kingdom. And the first two excuses had to do with material possessions and the third with affections. And so we can see from that that possessions and affections cover virtually every reason by which men and women give their regrets to the kingdom. So the master then opens the invite. He says, go get the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The same ones he was telling the Pharisee he should be inviting to uh, the banquet. And then it extends further because there's still room. And he says, go to those that are kept outside the city. Go even to Gentiles and invite them to this banquet. And in fact, compel people to come in. One writer says he tells his servants to find the most disreputable people of all, those standing around in the highways and near fences who are begging for assistance and known as vagabonds. The areas outside the city would have been inhabited by outcast groups, ethnic groups, tanners, traders, beggars, prostitutes, who required access to the city but were not allowed to live in it. Those that they wanted to keep unseen. And this is still the call for all of Jesus' disciples, people that say, I am a citizen of the kingdom, to present the invitation to life and compel our neighbors to come in. They would feast with us and our king. And Jesus offers the kingdom this perpetual feast of peace, a feast of help, guidance, friendship, rest, victory over self, control of passions, supremacy over circumstances, a feast of joy, tranquility, deathlessness, heaven opened, immeasurable hope, salvation. Yet people turn their backs on his feast. Preferring a visit with their possessions or affections instead. And all of it, it's ours. If we'll just come to the banquet, answer the invitation. It's always how it works. God's compassion, his mercy is never earned. It's always given. But you miss it if you reject it. And rejection here, as we see in Luke 14, often just looks like finding other things that are more important at the moment. But the truth is, from Scripture, from the reality of the kingdom, who this king is, is that the expense has been paid. The master has opened his house and he extends the invitation to you. You just have to come receive the feast. We see this truth from the rest of the New Testament. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You didn't have credit. You couldn't pay for it. Don't worry. By his blood it's been paid for. 1 Peter 1. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of the lamb without blemish or spot. This is how he's paid for your salvation, your banquet entry and invitation. Titus 2, Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In Romans 6, he said, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Jared Wilson says that he paid the highest price, made the most extravagant provision imaginable, his own flesh and blood. There is no more costly costliness than the cross of Christ. And he did that for sinners like us. He spared no expense. He held nothing back. He gave it all that we might have it all. Because friends, our sacrifice is insufficient. We could never earn a place at the table of this banquet, but his sacrifice covers us once for all. All of him for all of who we are. Forgiveness, salvation, purpose, the kingdom. Amen. Amen. Yes. That's more of a hallelujah moment. And our response is just to reject or to come. But Jesus bears the burden and he pays the price for us. It's a kingdom for those that can't afford it. And lastly, we have to know, coming to Jesus will cost you everything. Now, some of you know I got crazy economics. A friend told me this week, you just need to read one economics book. And I said, I have, and Bernie Sanders wrote it. Oh, you laugh at that joke. I see. Okay. But didn't I just say that you can't afford the kingdom? How am I now going to say it's going to cost you everything? Well, Jesus knows that the crowds are following and it's seemingly out of the blue. He says that if you don't hate family in your own life in comparison to the way that you value him, you cannot be his disciple. So for an audience that's comfortable with what they had, with their privilege and place, with their family line and their experience, he moves out among the mass of people that have started to follow the excitement of his ministry. And it's as if he is saying, I see that you keep following me, but you need to realize I want to consume your entire life. So the Pharisees wanted to be around Jesus because he had fame. He was popular in this moment. Maybe they could gain some of his influence, take some of his popularity. Those that had full stomachs wanted to be around Jesus because they got a free meal. The true disciples follow Jesus because they want him alone. The truth is, when we read this, we have to understand Jesus is not against family. You should never read Luke 14 and think for a second that Jesus wants you to despise your family. It's loving him this way may actually serve your family more than it previously did. Because hate here does not refer to emotional or mental dislike of family members mentioned, nor even to our own life. Instead, it indicates a total rejection of anything and anyone who would block our absolute commitment to Jesus as our Lord. The Spurge, Charles Spurgeon says, Our Lord does not use the word hate in our common acceptance of the term, for no man would hate his own life. He means that the love of all these must be secondary to the love we bear to him. Compared with our love to our Lord, all lower love must be more like hate. We must be willing to give up everything, to give up even ourselves, our entire selves, to him, for Christ will have all or nothing. He will never divide the human heart with any rival. If we profess to serve him, we must have him for our only master and not attempt to serve two masters. 
So if your way into the kingdom is coming to him, you must know ahead of time that this will be what defines you for eternity. It is not your pedigree. It is not your position. It's not your worldly power in any given moment, but the person of Jesus that defines you. And I think as we read this, it's, it's rightfully convicting to a point for us. Because this level of commitment is supposed to be exactly like the works that follow after faith. It's just supposed to come. Genuine faith at its center is utter commitment to Jesus. It's a willingness to renounce all that we have just to be his. Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, the Christian way is different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but have it out. Hand over the whole natural self. All of the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked. He wants the whole outfit. The essence of being a disciple of Christ is this unreserved commitment to him. And for us, it just involves holding loosely everything else that attempts to take his place. So there is a cost to being a disciple of Jesus, and it's not one of effort, however, but it is a reorientation of our values towards the greatest worth of being called into God's kingdom and warmly accepted into God's family all by sheer grace. For Jesus himself bore the greatest cost, the ultimate cost in our place. He took our condemnation so that we can give him all of who we are. And I'm struck that our living into this is always going to be incomplete until that day that we stand before him in glory and then it will be perfect. Then we will know in experience what it means to be wholly committed to Jesus. But we still lean into this now because Jesus renounced all that he had to bring us into the feast. Paul writes to the Philippian church, this church that needed to learn contentment, needed to learn giving it all over to Jesus this. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And because this is true, we can give ourselves to him. We can invite in the unseen in our community to sit at the table with us. The unlikely can receive grace. They too can shout that all the charges against me have been dropped. And we can take the lowest place that we would be honored 
in Christ. Oh, that our lives would be shaped by this love for Christ. Friends, it's what I desire for myself. It's what I desire for you, that we'd be defined by the sacrifice that he's given for us. And it would motivate us to live unto him. And it's what gives his disciples flavor. Because we are made salty by our all-in commitment and our least of these loves. And oh, that we would be known for this. That when people think of Reservoir Church, they don't think of a name or a personality, but they think of people who live wholly committed to Jesus. This last week, Matt Pilgrim, a good friend serving globally, and poet wrote a poem about a saint that had served his family. That She's in her 70s and sacrificed a portion of her life that the Michoan would go forward. The poem is titled, She Dared, and I want to share it with you. I know I've, go, I've gone long, but save it. I've met a woman who dared to do something, something foolish, something sacred. Something about leaving homes and families, about buying fields and pearls. Something the world has never understood and maybe never will. Because the world can't imagine that in the end, the last will be first in the courts of the king. She dared to throw her golden years into the furnace of servanthood and watch them melt and change into sacred treasures with names like time and health and energy. She spent lavishly on eternal, invisible things over which angels sing and men weep as the scandal of selflessness unfolds. She dared to take her well-earned rest and trade it for the burden of souls and hapless laborers and thankless harvest fields, burdens that she slung upon her shoulder with a wink and a smile, having learned in time what gladdens the heart of her king. She dared to make the beautiful gamble, betting on four of the weakest cards, yet winsomely confident that love poured out generously is not wasted any more than when priceless perfume or sinless blood are poured out as beautiful, precious waste. She dared to trade her well done, good and faithful for a plane ticket to a desert place where few will hear of her blood and sweat and tears as they are consumed on the altar of the unreached and great, un- ungrateful nations. She dared to trust that the footsteps of Jesus are the safest place for her own feet, even when they lead toward the servants' quarters in a rocky, cross-capped hill. She dared to love in her God-gifted ways, calling the devil's bluff with every diaper changed, every dish washed, and every storybook read for the hundredth time, and her life composed a testimony to the worth of Jesus that will be read in eternity. Those that have ears, let them hear. The kingdom is for those that can't afford it, and it is so worth it. As we turn away from Luke 14, first it's just a call to repentance. Repent of jockeying for place, of not seeing others, of trying to catch Jesus in blasphemy. And then come. 
The invite is open. Just turn to Jesus. Return to him over possession and obsession. To his grace, to his consuming claim over you. And to be wholly his. Live like he is all that matters because he is enough. Friends, this makes real disciples those that do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And what will they say of us? Prayerfully, they'll say they couldn't afford it, but they gave it all. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Will you pray with me? Lord, if we're honest, we don't often recognize that level of blessing. Just the invitation is to your feast, to your banquet. Lord, give us eyes to see that truth of you having borne our burdens, having given it all that we could be invited in. From that sacrifice, Jesus, by your spirit, reshape our life of one of commitment, of clinging, of Um, undeterred resolve to live for your glory. That we would be those that compel others to come in to see their place in the kingdom because of your work for us. In Jesus' name, amen.